Our Bible reading for today is coming from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 to 14. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 to 14. And the word of God reads, But among you there must not sorry, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, as an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth and find out what pleases the Lord have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret but everything exposed by the light becomes visible for it is light that makes everything visible this is why it is said wake up O sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you this is the word of the Lord. Darlington, thank you very much indeed, and good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you, and a very special welcome to Jeremy and Lyndon. It's great to have you here. For those of you who don't know, Jeremy and Lyndon were with us back in the day when we were still in our first building, uh, Mabel Elliott Hall, just opposite where Bruce's family live. A marvellous little building apart from the great big holes in the floor. But um, it's lovely to have you here today, and uh, it's great to have fellowship together. And then during the week, uh, Gillian and I had the joy of catching up with Amiel and Sarah up in Ghana uh, over Zoom. Uh, you may remember they left us, I think, back in 2019, and since then they've been serving at Redeemer City Church in Accra, and the ministry there is going fantastically well, and they're planting more churches. Uh, Amiel himself is going to Union Seminary in Wales to do his master's, I think, at the end of next year. Why he's going to Wales, I don't know. The weather's terrible. But um, it was a great joy to catch up with them, and, uh, and they do send you their very warmest greetings. Well, uh, if you're diving in and you're not quite sure what we're doing and why that passage was read. We are in a series in the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, do please raise your hand. Someone will bring it to you. And please have that Bible open at chapter 5 and verse 3. And uh, I will lead us in prayer as we begin. Well, Heavenly Father, it is indeed a great joy to worship you together and to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us 
then to speak to us, and then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this particular passage will come alive to our hearts and minds this morning. And we say together, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in uh, 2005, uh, George hit rock bottom. Uh, He was arrested twice for domestic violence and was sent to prison both times. Uh, On his release, he was required to attend 36 weeks of a batterer's intervention program. Uh, His wife and children moved out of the house and a court order prevented him from having any contact with them whatsoever. Uh, George knew that this was not the person that he wanted to be. Uh, He loved his wife and children. He didn't want to hurt them. He had a good job. He was well known in the community, but he could see that his behavior was putting everything that he valued at risk his marriage, his family, and even his freedom. He desperately, desperately wanted to change, but he didn't know where to start. Everything he'd tried in the past just didn't work. Uh, The Batterer's intervention program was no help whatsoever. Uh, The message that he heard there was that all he needed to know was that hitting a woman was wrong, and that he needed to drop his beliefs about male superiority. But the message made absolutely no sense to him because George already knew that hitting a woman was wrong and he didn't actually feel superior or entitled at all. In the end, actually rather reluctantly, George started attending church. And the main reason he went was because that was the only time that he was allowed to see his wife. But uh, to his surprise, the messages that he heard at church were utterly different from everything he'd been expecting. And rather than being given a list of rules to keep, he heard about God's love for him. And he was also surprised and deeply moved by the testimonies of the people whose lives had been deeply changed once they began a relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus. And it was about a a year later, after a particularly difficult week, when it finally became clear that the marriage he was trying to save was going to end anyway, that he prayed, confessing to God that he'd made a complete mess of his life, and asking God, to help him change. Well, very wonderfully, God did indeed answer that prayer. And with the love and support of his new Christian friends and some very wise counseling, George has been violence-free ever since. And today he helps people with the same struggle that he had for so many years. I was very struck by the observation that he makes on his website, and I hope that might appear on the screen now. His website is called the Ananias Foundation, and this is what he says. Quote, those of us working to stop 
violent or abusive behavior, often find changing our actions can be stubbornly difficult. It's not until we focus on the link between identity and behavior that we're able to make much headway. It turns out that our identity is central to how we act, react, and interact in relationships. Now just look at that last sentence again. It turns out that our identity is central to how we act, react, and interact in relationships. Now that is absolutely right. And that, of course, is what Paul has been saying in this central section of Ephesians. So if we're Christians this morning, then we are God's dearly loved children. That's who we are. That is our identity. That's what we learned last Sunday morning. And it's knowing that and believing it to be true, which is the key to living a life of love. It's not about slavishly following a set of rules. There's absolutely no power for change in that. No, it's only as we marvel every day on what it means to be God's dearly loved children, which of course is what Darlington was talking about a moment ago, that we actually find ourselves set free from all the abusive and hurtful behavior that messed up our lives, messed up our relationships before God took hold of us. Now this morning, Paul takes us on to the very next step by describing Christians as God's holy people. Can you see that in verse 3? That doesn't mean, of course, that he's talking only about those Christians who were living perfect lives. After all, if that were the case, uh, Paul wouldn't be warning them about sexual immorality and greed. Apparently, some of that had crept into the church. No, rather, what Paul is doing is reminding them of the marvelous truth that all those who've trusted in Christ have had their sins forgiven, and now Almighty God has declared them to be his holy people. The word holy, of course, means set apart. And the idea, of course, is that having forgiven them, God has made them into new people and has set them apart to live in a way that is distinctively different from the surrounding anti-God culture. That's what the New Testament means when it describes Christians as holy. Now, obviously, some of the Christians in Ephesus were struggling with this. So to help us remember who we are, what Paul does in this passage is put before us three vivid contrasts that define the essential differences between pagan living and holy living. And as we work through this, in each case, our interest is not going to be primarily in the specific types of behavior involved, although, of course, we are going to have to mention that. But rather, in each case, I want us to see that Paul's real interest 
lies in the attitudes that motivate our behavior, which is actually far more important. So we're going to be thinking about each pair of attitudes in the passage as not this, but that. Here's the first. For God's holy people, the proper attitude is not idolatry, but thanksgiving. Not idolatry, but thanksgiving. Now, I think if you're reading Ephesians all the way through at first sight, it's a bit of a surprise to find that the first area that comes under the spotlight in this passage is sexual immorality. Uh, In verse 2, which we looked at last week, Paul, as it were, took us to the top of the mountain uh, to help us marvel at the beauty of the love of Christ in his sacrificial death for us. But now in verse 3, by contrast, we find ourselves in the gutter where Paul reminds us just how far we have perverted that pure love of Christ into something really rather grotesque and horrible. He mentions three things that are as common today as they were back then, But if we allow these things a permanent place in our lives, in the end, they will keep us out of heaven. What are these things? Well, look at verse 3 again. The apostle says, But among you, you Christians, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Uh, Sexual immorality is just one word in the original. It's the word porneia, from which, of course, we get our English word pornography. But uh, the word in the original is actually talking about all forms of sexual activity outside of a faithful marriage relationship. And, of course, I don't need to tell you that it's everywhere today. Pornhub is the world's largest porn website where apparently, listen to this, 90 billion porn videos are watched every day. 90 billion. And although we sometimes think that pornography is essentially a male addiction, it's a man problem, 26% of those visiting Pornhub are women. Now I know, of course, that pornography is only one aspect, isn't it, of sexual immorality, but it is, I think, a clear indicator of how deeply ingrained sexual immorality is in Western culture. And friends, the greatest tragedy of all, of course, is that it's found its way into the church. Next on the list is impurity. And impurity there is talking not so much about our actions as our attitudes. It's referring to settled ways of thinking and values that we hang on to which lead to immoral behavior. And uh, it's the attitudes that we cultivate by spending time with the wrong people, uh, watching the wrong kind of media, and following the wrong role models. 
And then thirdly, on Paul's list, there's greed. And greed here is a very interesting word. You see, you look at that and you think, well, my goodness me, has Paul suddenly switched away from sexual immorality to talk about money and possessions? Answer, no, he hasn't. Because elsewhere, the same word is translated as coveting or covetousness. And the idea here in this particular context is that sexual lust is a degrading form of covetousness. Because it's coveting someone else's body for our own selfish gratification. But of course it's an appetite that is never satisfied and that's always wanting more. Now you might be thinking, well, why are these things such an enormous problem? Doesn't the church need to sort of move with the times? Well, the answer to that is that there's one big issue underlying these sins, and we need to think extremely carefully about it. Uh, To see what it is, please come with me to verse 5. Verse 5, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, friends, that verse is saying two things. First, it's saying that the person who's given themselves up to sexually promiscuous behavior will, in the end, find themselves excluded from heaven. Now, let me emphasize here that Paul there is not talking about the believer who falls into sexual sin but subsequently repents and is forgiven. Verse 5 does not apply to him or her. But verse 5 very definitely is saying that on the last day, the person who is caught up in that world with no desire to leave it will find the gates of heaven shut and locked against them. And if you think verse 5 is saying something else, Please come and tell me about it afterwards. But secondly, verse 5 is saying that, and notice this, the underlying problem is idolatry. You see, the person who does these things is an idolater. It's saying that persistent sexual immorality is actually a form of self-worship. It's sort of taking Jesus off the throne of my life and saying, I'm going to live my life, my way, and in this area, I utterly refuse the Lordship of Christ. The person, the Apostle says, that person won't go to heaven. And there's a definite logic to that, isn't there? But I think we need to think a little bit more deeply about this. I mean, why? Why is sexual immorality such a big issue with God? And I think the answer is this. God says in his word that he's given sex as a good gift to a man and woman joined together in a relationship of self-giving love for the whole of their lives. Why has God done that? Why? This is the interesting part, I think. He's done it because it reflects his character. So sex within the covenant of marriage 
is a picture of the exclusive love that exists between Almighty God and his people. Rightly understood, it's the kind of love which says, what can I give to the other person to give them joy? And if you're a Christian, that is God's attitude to you. And of course, the ultimate expression of that was the sacrifice of Christ, wasn't it? The sacrifice that Paul was talking about back in verse 2. But can you see this morning that sexually immoral behavior is exactly the opposite? Sexually immoral behavior is saying, what can I get out of this? It's entirely self-focused. It's got no consideration for the feelings of others. And that is why, precisely why, God hates it so much. It makes Jesus look bad. So, how do we, as Christian people, stay clear of it? The answer is a complete surprise. You see, we might think, mightn't we, that the cure for sexual immorality would be chastity or purity. But it's not. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, there's a warning against the kind of conversation that leads to immoral actions, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, uh, the kind of dialogue that's taking place every day on countless cell phones, Facebook, and so on. These things, we're told, are inappropriate for God's holy people. So what is appropriate? That's the question. Well, look at the last three words at the end of verse 4. But rather, thanksgiving. I mean, it sounds too simple for words, doesn't it? You're thinking, surely not, aren't you? But what Paul is saying there is that what will stop you and me from straying into sexual immorality is gratitude to God for what I have rather than lusting after what I don't have. So thanksgiving, you see, says God is the creator of me and everything about me. He's given me life and breath and everything. He's given me a fresh start through the precious blood of Jesus. And he's given me a place in his eternal family, even though I've done nothing to deserve it. And now he's brought me into a community of people who are committed to living a life of love together. And I am so deeply thankful. So our first lesson this morning is that living as God's holy people means not idolatry, but thanksgiving. Secondly, it also means not secrecy, but transparency. Verses 8 to 13. Please notice once again that the apostle does not begin with a command. Instead, he starts by reminding us of the dramatic change that God has brought about in our lives. Please look at the language of verse 8 with me. He says, for you were once darkness. 
but now you are light in the Lord. What an interesting way of saying it. You know, he could have said, once you were in darkness. Of course, that would have been true. But he's saying a great deal more than that. You see, before God took hold of us, we weren't essentially good people who had somehow lost our way in the dark. No. The very core of our being was darkness. But when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, there was an instant change. But now, says Paul, you are light in the Lord. That's a very remarkable statement. Because remember, will you, that he's writing to a church that was battling to shake itself free from the degrading things in verses 3 and 4. So for that reason, you see, I I think if we were writing this, you might expect the apostle to say, well, when you finally got rid of those things to my satisfaction, then you will be light in the Lord. But he doesn't say that. He says, in spite of those things, you are light in the Lord. How on earth can that be possible? Well, one commentator gives an extremely helpful illustration. I do hope Seb will put it on the screen for us. He says this. When Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. When the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon is a picture of believers, the church. The church shines, but not with its own light. It shines with reflected light. At times, the church has been a full moon, dazzling the world with an almost daytime light. Those were times of great enlightenment. For example, in the days of Paul and Luther and Wesley. At other times, the church has been only a thumbnail moon. And in those days, very little light shone on the earth. But whether the church is a full or thumbnail moon whether waxing or waning, it reflects the light of Christ. Our light does not originate with us. I think that's extremely helpful. Paul's saying, though, even more than that. He says we're actually doing more than simply reflecting the light. He says we are the light. So how does that work? We'll come back to the end of verse 8. Paul says, Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word translated finding out means putting something to the test, finding that it works, and then going on using it. That is what that word means in the original. Now, some of you know that I enjoy the occasional game of golf. Uh, But in recent months, um, I've been battling to get out of the bunkers. In case you don't know what a bunker is, uh, on a golf course, you will find a series of sand pits placed at strategic points around a golf course. 
If you happen to find your ball in one of those sandpits, well, if you're like Ian over there, he's brilliant, he can get out of them, I'm hopeless, and I've been really battling, and it's made my golf extremely miserable. So last week, a friend took pity on me, and he said, I'm going to lend you this club. I wasn't convinced. I thought, this is not going to work. But um, somewhat skeptically, I took it onto the golf course this week, and it did work. And so, to my surprise, I'm enjoying golf again, and I'm carrying on using it. Silly illustration, but take that illustration and apply it here. You see, we are to live as children of light, and the way that we do that, listen extremely carefully to this, it's probably the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. The way we do this is by putting God's truth to the test. That means we don't simply talk about it. We practice the lifestyle that he commands, and as we do, we discover that the Christian lifestyle actually works, and that it really does bring love and joy and peace into our lives. And you see, friends, it's discovering that in our experience which pleases the Lord and also motivates us to carry on doing it. But living as children of light serves a second very vital function in God's design for the church. And again, this is totally unexpected. You'll find it in verse 11. Paul says in verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Now this is radical. To see how radical it is, we must first understand that when Paul talks about the deeds of darkness here, He's not thinking about what especially depraved people outside the church might be getting up to on Saturday night. He's writing to the church. I mean, that is the context of Ephesians. So Paul is thinking here about the people who are in church on Sunday morning, and he's being absolutely realistic. And he knows that some of them, some of us, haven't been able to completely shake off the old life. There might be part of them that wants to come into the light, but part of them is still attracted by the addictive power of the secret darkness. Now, to a greater or lesser extent, friends, that's true of all of us, all of us, me included. Now, why? Why do we prefer the secrecy of darkness? I guess the most obvious reason is that we're ashamed, ashamed of our sin, and we don't want other people to know about our sin. But you see, what we need to remember is that in the Christian life, secrecy and darkness are deadly. Some of you will have heard of the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was pastoring faithfully in Nazi Germany before the Second World War. He was martyred by Hitler. But in a book about Christian community, listen to what he says. Quote, 
Sin demands to have a man or a woman by themselves. It withdraws them from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over them. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying there is that if we think we are secret and safe, we are infinitely more likely to continue in the deeds of darkness. The things which the Apostle Paul says in the end will keep us out of heaven. So what on earth is to be done? Well, in verse 11, the Apostle says that the children of light are to expose the deeds of darkness. Now, I want to be very clear with you what the Apostle does not mean by that. Paul does not want Raymond to take out a clipboard and go around after the service, making a note of all of our secret sins and then posting it over there for us all to look at. That's not what Paul is talking about. That would be destructive and negative and contrary to everything Paul has taught in Ephesians. What he is saying that as the light of Christ is that as the light of Christ shines in the lives of more mature Christian believers, the deeds of darkness are exposed by way of contrast. That's what he's saying. So as the disobedient Christians of verse 12 look at the lives of their more obedient brothers and sisters, they start to recognize the fruitlessness and the futility of living a double life. And in that sense, you see, their deeds of darkness are exposed by the light of God's truth. And they find themselves facing a very real choice, don't they? I think one of the clearest summaries of this is found in the Gospel of John. Keep a finger in Ephesians. Turn back, please, to John chapter 3. Gospel of John chapter 3. One of the most marvellous chapters in that Gospel. We're just going to read from verse 19. John 3, verse 19 and following. This is the verdict... Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. I think it works like this. When the light starts to shine in a church family, the disobedient in the congregation react in one of two ways. Either they yearn for the light, they want the light more and more, they want to stop living a double life, and they make a definite decision to do something about it, or they run for cover. 
And I want to say this morning that you, if you are on secret excursions back to Ephesus, if you have given up the fight against the deeds of darkness, I want to plead with you this morning to cancel the bookings and tear up the tickets. Get rid of everything in your life that is dragging you back to a pagan lifestyle. And ask a Christian of the same sex to walk with you in the light of God's truth. Do it today. If you put it off, you won't do it. So living as God's holy people means putting off idolatry and putting on thankfulness. Uh, it means putting off secrecy and putting on transparency. And lastly and very briefly, it means being not asleep, but awake. Verse 14. See, the greatest danger that we face in living as God's holy people is going to sleep spiritually. Imagining that we are spiritually safe when we're not. Uh, some of you will have heard of the Christian musician Steve Green. Uh, who used to perform with the Gaither Band um, back in the 80s and the 90s. And uh, on tour, he got to know the men whose job it was to sort of clamber around on the set before the start of a concert on those girders, you know, 100 feet above a concrete stage. He says these men had no problem at all walking on one of those girders, even if it was only four inches wide, in order to sort of set up the speakers and the lights and all of that. What they hated was working in buildings with false ceilings, you know, with ceilings of flimsy acoustic tile suspended just a few feet below the girders. They were still maybe 100 feet above the floor of the stage, and if they slipped, their weight would smash through the acoustic tile and they'd be gone. You see, these false ceilings made them think that they were safe than they really were. And you see, friends, that's how the devil works in your life and mine. He doesn't try to scare us to death. No, he tries to persuade us that the danger of a spiritual fall is far less than we really think it is. So he comes to us and he whispers, oh, don't worry, everyone's doing it. It's just an innocent piece of fun. It's harmless. And before we know it, relationships are broken, people are hurting, and the devil has got a very firm foothold. And that's why in verse 14, Paul says, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's quoting there from a hymn which some scholars say was used in the early church in a Christian baptism ceremony. And what he's saying, you see, is that pagan culture is constantly coming at us with seductive messages to rejoin the world. These messages are so loud and so plausible 
But it's so terribly easy, isn't it, for us to drift off to spiritual sleep, fail to see the spiritual danger, and in order for that not to happen, we need to wake up. We need to make a conscious decision at the beginning of every day to surrender our lives to Jesus and ask him to shine his light on us all over again so that we can see clearly. So why don't we do that now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read about the struggles of the Ephesian church so many centuries ago, we see our own struggles so clearly. For, like them, we also battle with sexual temptation, impurity, and greed. And while we rejoice that we are your dearly loved children, we know that we are sinners still. So, Father, in our battle against the things we know are displeasing to you, help us to be thankful for your mercies, transparent in our behavior, and awake to everything that might draw us away from you and your people. And we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.